All right, guys. Find the book of Ruth, Old Testament. If you are a woman, you know this book well. Amen? I don't hear pages rustling. You should be flipping open them Bibles. Or you should be tapping that screen on your phone and pulling up that Bible or get that iPad out and hit the middle of it. Because I want you guys to read this with me. It's going to be on the screen. But I want you guys to know that what the book of Ruth has to say directly impacts the celebration of Christmas. No Ruth, no Christmas. You have to understand that. It's a unique situation. Now, some of you today that I've talked to, and some that I've talked to this week, you are living through a moment of crisis. Amen? Amen doesn't mean it's a good thing. Amen just means it is true. You are going through a time of crisis, a time of transition. Maybe it's, it's like that you're graduating from, from high school and facing college. Maybe you're, you're looking for that next job that's going to pay the bills. Maybe you're, you're looking for some way to correct your life's course or bring yourself back around to where you need to be. Does that sound familiar to anybody? We all go through times of crisis. Even those of us who are old and grown go through crisis. Sometimes it's everybody else's crisis we go through, but it's there. I want to state today that crisis is an opportunity in disguise. Now, you notice my wife's wearing a very spiffy dress today, right? It's a Chinese dress, right? Now, in, in, Chinese, in Chinese writing, the character that they use for crisis, for distress, is the same character for opportunity. It's the same, it has the same meaning. Crisis is opportunity, and that's what I want to talk about today. If you're going through a time of crisis in your life, a time of separation, a time of indecision, not really sure where you're going, you need to see this as God's chance to do something amazing in your life. Because that's what he did in the life of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 is where we're going to start this morning. Every decision shapes the future. Does everybody understand that? Every decision shapes your future. I've moved many times, changed schools, changed states, changed countries. I have done many things that put me in transition. Every decision in my life, I can look back, every decision took me to the next high point or low point of my life. The right decision takes you to a low point. I mean, sorry, the wrong decision takes you to a low point. The right decision takes you to the next step in your walk with the Lord. Look at this, Rev. Ruth, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Okay, during the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to live in the land of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. Y'all know that name, don't you? The names of his two sons were Malon and Chilon. Hey, he was chilling on, right? No, no, sorry, I, just had, I had to throw that out there. Anyways, they were Ephraimites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the land of Moab and settled there. Now, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah, and the second was named Ruth. Everybody cheers. Yay, Ruth. After they lived in Moab about 10 years, both Malon and Chilon also died. That's tragic. There goes your husband. There goes your two sons. And Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. All right, pull back. Look at this. This is a crisis of faith. I mean, the story of the life of Ruth and Naomi is tragic. First of all, they're living in Bethlehem, the city of David, right? You know why it's called the city of David? Because of Ruth. You're going to see that in a little bit. 
I told you, no Ruth, no Christmas. You got to have it all together. Now, it says they were here and a famine hit the land. That's not unusual. God would send famine into the land to correct the people's attitudes and their actions. Perhaps something was happening in Israel that they were unhappy about. What do you know about the time of Judges? What's the most common phrase in the book of Judges? And everybody did what was right in the eyes of God. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Sounds just like America today. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You see, there was nobody really to lead them. Joshua had gone on to the grave. The judges were just people that God sent in to correct problems or to free them from oppression. So it's during this time of the judges that this famine comes upon the land and upon the man, Elimelech, who's living right there in Bethlehem. Now he makes a decision. It's a hard decision. He decides to move 50 miles to the east, all the way on the other side of the Dead Sea, he moves to the land of Moab, and he takes his family. That wasn't really a very profitable decision. What do you know about Moab? Think about it. Was it a lush, green, beautiful land with vineyards and gardens and people sunbathing by the beach? No, it was a hideous place. It was a dry desert. It was very arid. Now, they had lots of grass. They had lots of grass on the area. The only thing you could really do in Moab was raise cattle or raise sheep because that's all that was fit to live in that land. You should also know something else about Moab. How do we get the people? How do we get the Moabites? Well, remember now, there was a guy named Lot, and Lot lived in a very nasty place called Los Angeles. Y'all didn't get that one, did you? Sodom. He flees at the bidding of the angels, and as he flees, his wife looks back because she left her Prada bag in the house, and poof, she got turned into salt. Now, no man ever wanted his wife to get turned into salt, did they? No, never. Anyways, Lot goes on with his two daughters. They go up to the caves, and there they wait while the destruction goes on. Anybody remember what happens in the cave? His daughters, being brilliant, say, oh my gosh, all the men on earth are dead. What are we going to do? I know. Let's sleep with our father. Okay, people were a little short on brain cells back in those days. They do this, and one of the children that comes out of that incestuous relationship fathers the nation of the Moabites. So already the Israelites and the Moabites do not get along. They're cousins. They're related in a Kentucky mountain, deep valley type of way. So they're related in a strange fashion, but they don't like each other. The Israelites considered the Moabites incestuous animals. They had many false gods. Their religion was very hedonistic, very fleshly. And they had a king, a king called Balak. Anybody remember King Balak in the book of Judges? He wants to get rid of the Israelites. He wants to really do away with them. So he calls this guy Balaam, says, Balaam. I got a problem with my relatives over here. Can you come curse them? Now, Balaam, wanting the money, says, well, I got to check with God first. So he checks with God. God says, don't do it. But he goes anyways. And every time he gets ready to curse them to get paid off, God says, don't do it. He winds up blessing them, right? Remember Balaam? Balaam is the one that teaches the king, teaches Balak how to seduce the men of Israel 
by sending their prettiest Moabite women into the camp to draw them away to worship the gods of the Moabites. Is it any wonder that everybody in Israel despised the people of Moab? They were not enemies as such, but the people of Moab had never been anything but a curse to the people of Israel. This famine must have been horrible for Elimelech to take his family and go all the way to Moab, 50 miles to the east, across the Dead Sea, to this place full of people that everybody around him despises. Have you ever been that desperate, church? You ever been so desperate you made a move that was just, nobody could understand it? You were in a bad situation, and you had to make a radical change of life to get out of it. Nobody understood it. But you know what? Every decision shapes the future. He went to Moab. Now, it keeps going again and again. He was an Ephraimite from Bethlehem in Judah. Now he settles there, and his sons take Moabite wives. Okay, it's not bad enough he goes over to Moab. It, it'd be like if your family was all, you know, UNC, and you married your sons off to state women. I mean, go figure that one. What could possibly... Y'all just don't like... Okay, never mind. It's just a school reference. It's okay. I'm trying to find a way to relate it to us today. In our last church, it was a Korean church. And there was nothing worse in a Korean church than having your Korean sons marry white daughters. That was just like the bottom of the rung. That's the end of the feeding trough. Now, of course, in our church, such a thing would never happen. Can I get an amen from somebody? Okay. We know enough about God to know that God has no respecter of people, cultures, countries, or anything else. Amen? But that's how it was back then, and that's how some people still are today. They get hung up on that stuff, and it's ridiculous. And, of course, you know, the first daughter was named Orpah. Ooh, there's a name for you. Do you know that it's only by a happenstance that the TV actress Oprah is named Oprah? Do you know why she's named Oprah? Because her mother couldn't spell Orpah. She was supposed to be named for this woman right here. And the only reason she's not is her mom couldn't spell it. She got the spelling wrong, and it became Oprah. Oh, little, little thing to throw out to you there. Okay. Second one was named Ruth. Now, Ruth was married to Malan. Okay, so he's, she's married to this guy. And they're married about 10 years. How do we know that? When we get to Ruth chapter 4, verse 10, you'll see who her husband was. And they were married about 10 years because after 10 years, what happened? Both of her sons died, and she was left with nothing. See, a husband was the greatest possession a woman could have. And every woman in this church says, Amen. Every woman except my wife. I heard that. <laughs> okay. I'm getting old. <laughs> so for a woman, a husband was the greatest possession. Because in those days, women just didn't work. They just didn't go out and get jobs as nurses. You know, they were dependent on their husbands. Amen. A husband was a... Thank you very much. Yeah. Husbands were great things. I didn't hear you. Anyways, I won't tell them. No. Anyway, so... The second most important thing in a woman's life were her sons. Because sons remained loyal to their mothers. When a woman marries, she passes out from under the authority of her father, under the authority of her husband. That's why 
the woman would always leave the home and go off to wherever her husband's family was. That's how tradition was. That's why every woman wanted sons. Not only did sons carry on the family name, sons were going to be around to take care of mom in her old age. That's just how it was back then. Of course, I personally am biased. I think daughters are magnificent. Can I get an amen from somebody? Yeah, yeah. Daughters are one. You know why? Because daughters love their fathers, as is appropriate in the world. Okay. I have to say that just it's appropriate. You've seen many decisions right here in these first few verses. The choice to go to Moab. The choice to allow your sons to marry women from that country. Now, he was only going to go there till the famine was over. He made a choice to stay for 10 years. And then all three died. Now, three women left alone in the world have very important decisions to make. Ruth 1, 6 through 14 is our next section. Yes, every decision shapes the future, but painful decisions have a deeper impact. When you are in pain, that is the wrong time to make a quick decision. When you are in pain of heart or mind or spirit, you will almost always make the wrong choice unless you take it and you pray it through and you really look at it. If you're sitting here today and your life stinks, your life royally stinks, guess what? The next thing you do shapes your whole future. Do you believe me? Just say amen. Because it is true. When you are in that place where everything hurts, what you do next is critical. Look at this, verse 6. She and her daughters-in-law prepared to leave the land of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's need by providing them food. Okay? Everything back home in Bethlehem is going great. Things in uh, Moab, not so good. Husband, out. Sons, gone. What is she left with? Two daughter-in-laws. So she figures, oh, I got to go back where there's food. Even though she's a widow, even though she has no husband, no sons, she has what back in Bethlehem? Family. She has family. Family is very important when you're going through hard things. Look at this, verse 7. She left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. She said to them, each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show faithful love to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. You see, by not remarrying, they were showing fealty. They were showing faithfulness to their husbands, even though they had passed away. May the Lord enable each of you to find security in the house of your new husband. She kissed them, and they wept loudly. Ah, let's stop right there. Now she's made a decision. Naomi says, you know what? I am going to go back. I'm going to be a widow. I do have family. But I'm going to have nothing. My life is going to be bitter. It's going to be miserable. Why don't you girls just go home, go back to your families? There's no disgrace. Your husbands are dead. You have no children. So there's no embarrassment. Go back to your families. Go back to what you have because it's going to be better than my poor, bitter existence. Let me tell you something. If you're in a place right now and you think you don't have anything, honey, stop and breathe because you've got more than you know. Right now, no matter what you have lost, you have more than you could ever imagine. What does Naomi show us right here? 
that tells us a lot about her character as a woman. What does she say? Each of you go back to your mother's house. May Yahweh. Remember what Yahweh is, is the covenant name of God. The name that people use when they want to call upon the authority of a sovereign God. They want to call upon the grace and the mercy of a sovereign God. I like this because this, may he show faithful love to you. Anybody ever been to New York? You ever see all the Jewish cats walking around with the flat pie pan hats and they got the long beards and the curlies on the side? Okay, you know what those are, right? Hasidic Jews. Do you know why they're called Hasidic Jews? Because this word here, faithful love, chesed. Chesed means, I quote, kindness shown to those who don't deserve it. Not dependent on the person, similar to grace. The grace that God gives us as unbelievers when we call out to him. We have no call upon God's grace, no call upon his mercy. He shows us his chesed. He shows us his grace, his faithful love. It also means loyalty. So these Hasidic Jews, they are faithful to God. They are loyal to God, and they're depending upon his loyalty and faithfulness to them. That's a great name for a church, the Church of God's Faithfulness. That would be a great name for a church, amen? The Church of God. That's your name, church. You can look into your heart, and you will experience the chesed of God, the faithfulness the loyalty of God. Even though Naomi was hurting, she knew God was loyal and faithful to her. No matter what was going on, what confusion of mind or pain of heart, God's faithfulness never leaves us. Don't raise your hands. Don't say a word. Have you ever felt forsaken by God? Don't say it. Have you ever felt forsaken? What happened is, you forgot that God is eternally faithful. God is eternally faithful. Even when we are faithless, even when we betray him, even when we turn our back on him, even when we claim we don't know him, he knows us, and he will never, ever turn his back on his own people. Amen? You need to know that no matter what you're going through. You need to know God has not and will never turn his back on you. Go on to verse 10. No, they said to her, we will go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, return home. This is a command. Go home. Return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husbands? I'll stop right there. That's a very creepy thing to say. That's just creepy. You know, because let me explain it to you. If you can find for me Deuteronomy. 25, starting in verse 5. It's actually verse 5 and 6. I want to show you why I'm in the book of Ruth. I'm in the book of Ruth because we're coming to Christmas. And Christmas is about the Redeemer. Without the book of Ruth, you can't understand the Redeemer of Israel. Because we first see the Redeemer here. This may be a little hard for you to stomach, but just understand this is God's way. This is how he did it. Deuteronomy 25, starting in verse 5. When brothers live on the same property and one of them dies, without a son, the wife of the dead man may not marry a stranger outside the family. Okay. Her brother-in-law, woo, is to take her as wife, have relations with her, and perform, quote-unquote, 
the duty of a brother-in-law for her. The first son she bears will carry on the name of the dead brother, so his name will not be blotted out from Israel. The name was critical because the land of Israel was divided by household and by name. If the name is lost, the land is lost, and it becomes barren. So for God, it was so important that she not go seeking some other man somewhere else, but that someone would take care of her need. The need was to give her a son. The son would take the place of the one who was lost, restore the name, also restoring her future. Because in those days, a woman's future was her husband and her son. Both would work. Both would provide for her. Both would be for her what she needed, protection, safety, sanctuary. So it was critical that these women be taken care of, these widows. What Naomi says is exactly what Deuteronomy says in chapter 25, verse 5. Am I able to have more sons who could become your husbands, giving you sons to take the place of the sons that I've lost? Return home. Here's that command again. Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I am too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and bear sons. Would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters. My life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Again, they wept loudly, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Ruth clung to her. Very important. This is critical because you see what's happening is she's wanting them to go away from her because all she can think All she can think is, my life stinks, and my life is always going to stink. Even though she has faith in God, even though she calls on God's faithfulness, in her bitterness of spirit, she doesn't see that God can still work even in the life of a husbandless, sonless widow. She doesn't see what's really going on yet. She doesn't understand it. And one thing I want to separate here. There's two words we're going to run into in the book of Ruth, and you need to know them. This brother-in-law, this duty of the brother-in-law, very cool. It's called a yabam. Literally means the brother of my husband. The yabam. So when she evokes Deuteronomy 25, she's invoking the help of the yabam. There is another word. One who is not a brother-in-law, but who is a close relative. And that's a gawal. A gawal is the kinsman redeemer. It's the one who comes from outside into and redeems you from poverty, redeems you from slavery, redeems you from death, redeems you from wastedness. All of us in this room who know Jesus Christ have met our gawal. And that is what Ruth needs. Because literally, there is nobody else to take her as wife. That's why Orpah leaves. There's nobody else to take her and give her a son and give her a future. Her only hope is to return. But I want you to notice something. Painful decisions have a deep impact. When Naomi urged her daughters-in-law to go home, was she doing what was best for them or what was best for her? What was best for her? She couldn't bear the pain of her life, and she didn't want them to either. But consider what I told you about Moab. Was it a godly country? No. Was the name of Yahweh known and revered among the Moabites? No. Were they a people of faithfulness? No. This was a land of ungodly idolatry, 
of people who in the past had turned against Israel, turned against the God of Israel. Their chief god was Chemosh. And Chemosh, the worship of Chemosh, involved human sacrifice. Horrible, disgusting, vile sacrifice. She was sending her daughters-in-law, whom she claimed to love, sending them with God's blessing back to marry pagan men who did not know God, who did not know the love of Yahweh, who did not know the Ten Commandments of Moses. Was that really what was best for her daughter-in-laws? Because, don't forget, Ruth, we know, at least had been married for 10 years. For 10 years, Mala and her husband had told her about Yahweh, about Moses, about the delivery, all, yep, all that good stuff. She had heard about all of that for all 10 years. What did it mean for her now to turn her back on everything her husband had taught her to go back to the land where her husband would want her to worship false idols, pagan images, other things? It would mean the losing of everything she had gained through her marriage to Malan. So that's why Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her tightly. You see, somewhere in the back of her head, she knew something better waited for her if she remained faithful to Naomi. You guys, you may be at the place in your life where you think you want to chuck it all. You know that being faithful to God is not helping me. Being faithful to the word of God is not giving me what I want. I can't get ahead of my business. I can't find the right husband. I can't find the right wife. I can't whatever. Here's the thing. Both of these women stood at a critical juncture in their life. They were about to make a decision that would bring either blessing or cursing into their lives. The right decision would lead to an amazing future. The wrong decision would lead to oblivion. This is how I know. Ruth 1, 15 through 22, and we are done. One decision that you can make in life will overshadow everything else that you do. Understand this. You make a lot of decisions in your life, don't you? You make decisions every week, every day. How do I raise my children? How do I, am I a good husband? How am I a good wife? How do I participate in things around me? There's one decision that will change your whole life, and if you make the wrong one, you can't recover from it. Here it is, Ruth 1, 15 through 22. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her God. Follow your sister-in-law. That was a cruel thing for Naomi to say. That was a faithless thing for her to say. But Ruth replied, do not persuade me to leave you or go back and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. And man, say it with me. And your God will be my God. That's the decision that Ruth made that ultimately led her to be part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. Read the book of Matthew. It's all men. So-and-so begat, so-and-so who... A lot of begatting in that book. All this begatting, and there's only a few women in it. And one of those women is a Moabite woman named Ruth who chose to leave her people, her way of life, her country, and cling to the God she had discovered through her husband. It's an important decision. It says this, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. 
Notice this. May Yahweh punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped trying to persuade her. Stop right there. Instantly, when she said this, may Yahweh punish me if anything but death separates us. Who does that remind you of, church? You encountered her in the book of Joshua. We did all of Joshua, and you met this woman already. This woman who was a pagan, who was from a heathen land, who uttered the sacred covenant name of God, Yahweh. Who was it, church? Rahab. Joshua chapter 2, verse 8. Can you find Joshua 2, verse 8 for me? I would deeply appreciate it. Because I want you to see it. It's very frightening how these two women, both foreigners to Israel, both from pagan cultures, seem to know and believe in this God of Israel. Before the men fell asleep, verse 8, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that Yahweh has given you this land and that the terror of you has fallen on us. And everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you. Now down to 11. When we heard this, we lost heart. And everyone's courage failed because of you. For Yahweh your God is God of heaven above and on the earth below. Verse 12. Now please swear to me by Yahweh that you will also show kindness to my family. That's an amazing woman right there. Oh, by the way, anybody care to guess where Rahab shows up later? In the lineage of Jesus. Amazing how these pagan women, raised in countries that have no respect for God, no respect for the law of Moses, find their way into the lineage of Jesus, and it's because they place their faith in him, contrary to everything their culture teaches them. They could live in their culture, they could survive, they could prosper if they would just be like everybody else. But they choose to be different than everybody else. They choose to be something special, something unique. They choose to follow that something in their heart that tells them there's more than what their culture provides. I keep going. Back in verse 19, here in the book of Ruth. The two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival, and the local women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? She's been gone 10 years. But this expression means, I can't believe it really is Naomi. Apparently, the grief and the agony had changed her physically. It had so worn on her and so torn on her that she looked different. They thought it was her, but they really couldn't tell. You see, that's what grief will do to you. It will age you. Trust me, it will age you. Anyways, <laughs> she says, don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. Pleasant. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. It means bitter. Bitter. There's a lot of people in the church today, not this church, but churches far, far away, that if we were to actually call them by their name, there would be many Maras in the church. Not so many Naomi's. Because to be Naomi, your faith in God has to shine out of you, has to overwhelm you. It has to be the mark of you. When your deciding principle, when your life 
experience is God's good, God is sovereign, God is there, you will be Naomi. But if all you can see is what's happening in the world, what's going on around you, what things are transpiring, then you become Mara, you become bitter. We can't become bitter, because when we become bitter, we take no joy in our salvation. She answered, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me, Naomi, since the Lord has pronounced judgment on me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? Naomi came back from the land of Moab with her daughter-in-law, Ruth the Moabitess. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Interesting. So you see, this grief had blinded Naomi to everything she had. She says, I went away full, husband and two sons, I've come back empty. Was she empty, church? Was Naomi empty when she returned to Bethlehem? No, she wasn't. What was the great treasure that she was too bitter to see? Ruth. The presence of this faithful daughter-in-law was greater in the long run than the love of her husband and her sons because they had gone away. Orpah had left. Ruth should have left. But her presence, her abiding faithfulness, her chesed, was a greater blessing than all those other things put together. Church, no matter what's happening in your life, no matter what you're going through, I want you to look in today and say, what is my blessing? What is the blessing I have in my life that I'm not looking at? I am bitter, I am angry, I am frustrated, I am fed up, etc., 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 so on and so forth. And when you become very mara, very bitter, you miss all the blessings. You know what a great blessing is for me? Babies in the sanctuary. Babies are cute. Babies are fun, except when they're pooping or other things. <laughs> then you just give them back to their parents, and they're, they're cute later, you know. There's always a blessing if you look. In the midst of all of it, you may not have all that you want, but you have what you need because God says he will never leave you nor forsake you. If your focus is always on what you don't have, what you are not, what you've not achieved, what you've not possessed, that's not how to live a life that is focused on Christ. If I gave you a piece of paper today and said, list your 10 greatest blessings, how many of you would struggle to get past two? Think about it. I gave you a piece of paper, and I gave you one minute to list your 10 greatest blessings. How many of you guys would choke out after two? And that's an example of how bitter we can become when we compare our lives to the world. The world's got nothing I want. Everything I want and love is in this building. My wife, my daughter, and you. That's all the blessing I need. And I'm being honest. You think I'm just saying that because it's a sermon. No. That's all the blessing I need. That's all the blessing I will ever need. You know why? Because when I'm dead and they laid me in the grave in another 70 years or so, everything I have stays here. It goes to somebody else. But all of you who know the Lord, I will see you again in the gates of heaven. And that's a good thing. See, Naomi couldn't see the blessing around her. I told you when I started this, the third section, one decision overshadows all the other decisions. You should know what it is now. 
What is the one decision in your life that will overshadow everything you do, no matter how educated you get, no matter how much money you make, no matter how many cars or houses or guns or dresses or bags or high heels or whatever, no matter what it is you possess, you always got to pick on the soft spot. Anyways, no matter what you possess, what is the one decision that will affect everything else in your life? Who you stand with. Ruth stood with Naomi. As a result, she would be taken into a period of extraordinary blessing. Orpah stood with what she thought was a sure thing, the easy deal. Oh, I can go home, I can get a husband, I know how to live there, I know the people. It's easy, it's not a challenge. That's the coward's way out. The coward's way out is to side with what's easy. Ruth chose faithfulness. She chose to stand by Naomi. What is the one decision that will shape the rest of your life? What you do with Jesus Christ. Because when you come here on Sunday morning, you are confronted with who he is and what he requires. Who is he? He is the son of God. He is the redeemer. He is the only one that can get you into heaven. Because there ain't nothing you can do to get there. So your decision is this. Do you stand by your own sense of what's right? Do you do what's right in your own eyes, your own mind? Do you choose your own path? Or do you choose to stand with the one who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If I go away, I will come back because I'm going to prepare a place for you that you will be with me for eternity. Orpah had a great life. She probably went back. She found a guy that would love her. She probably had a bunch of kids and a house. Gold ring through her nose. They actually did that back then, so it's creepy, but yeah. But you know what? At the end of the day, she had squat. She had nothing because she had forsaken the one thing in her life that would have been a blessing, and that is to stay faithful to the one who loved her, and that was Naomi. If she had stayed faithful like Ruth, she would have been blessed. As it is, do you know how many times you see Orpah's name after this? Squat. She disappears. She's not mentioned. She's not referenced. She's not referred to. She becomes as if she never existed. Those who choose to stand with the world pass away with the world. Those who stand with Christ have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. That's eternal life. That's life that goes on past this world or this job interview or this decision or this trouble. One decision will shape your whole life. Beloved, I tell you this, do not make this decision lightly. Because if you make the wrong decision on this point, you are hosed. You make the wrong decision in, in regards to Jesus Christ, you cannot recover from that. Okay, you meet a girl, you like the girl, let the girl go, you're good. You meet a guy, he's nice, he's handsome, he has money, but he's a punk, let him go. Because women and men, like fish in the ocean, they come and they go. <laughs> Throw one salmon back and another salmon up there. Talk to Elmer about fish. Because he can tell you, you can net bunches of them. Throw out a couple bad ones. Now, fortunately, when you marry the right one, it's like a score. You're good. I didn't forget you, Ken. Anyways, so I'm telling you, 
People come and go. Jobs come and go. Christ is the single decision that you have to make. Because if you don't make it, your decision is made for you. John 3, 18 says this. Those who believe are not condemned. Yes? Those who do not believe are what? Two words. Condemned already. You, it's not like in the real world we say, you know, oh, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Wrong. You're only damned if you don't. When you accept Christ, that's salvation. That's permanent. It's eternal. When you choose not to make a decision, you've made the decision. Orpah went back to a man who worshipped Chemosh, who worshipped the gods of the Moabites, who led her into idolatry, and she never knew the blessing of Yahweh again. Ruth stayed with Naomi, went to the land of Israel, back to the city of Bethlehem, and there her life will be irrevocably changed, and she will join a very select group of women whose names are recorded in the lineage of Jesus. All right, so I ask you, one last question. Are you in crisis today? Are you in crisis today? Is there something going on in your life? Is there some decision that you need to make? Is there something that weighs on your heart? Is there something you need to do something about today? Then here you go. One, examine the decision that you make today carefully because you will have to live with it forever. The decision you make today, for young people, like it's in that room back there, the decision is do I drink, do I not drink? Do I smoke, do I not smoke? Do I date, do I not date? Do I do this or do I do that? One decision, one choice, one day can end your life. How many kids do we know? It was their first beer. It was also their first car accident. It was also their last car accident. But I only took drugs once. That's all you have to take it. How many girls? I only slept with one boy once. Yep, and that was one too many times. Mom, that's what happens. One decision can end your life. We know that, but we don't relate it to Jesus Christ. Believe me, not choosing Christ can end your life permanently. Two, the hardest choices will have the greatest impacts, so weigh them prayerfully. If you're facing a big decision today, and I know a bunch of people in this room that are facing big decisions, you better pray that thing through because the decision you make will either make or end your future. You need to make that carefully. Third, who you tie yourself to is of supreme importance. Okay, the results are life and death. Literally, who you tie your eternal self to is life or death, and it's your life or death. That's the decision that we've all made when we chose to believe in Christ. How we stand up for it every day, as Brother Ralph said, how we stand up and talk about that decision, how we stand by it, that influences the rest of our life as well. Amen? This is a great book, guys. You do not want to miss the next three chapters. The next three Sundays, you want to be here because this is about your lives, how you live, and where your life's going to take you. All right? Let's pray. Father God, thank you. I thank you that a long time ago, in a poverty-stricken land, when famine was over, you did take Elimelech and his family to Moab. It was, it was insane to go there, Lord, but they went there. And there his son met a girl, an extraordinary woman. And you brought their hearts together, Father God, and you blessed not only the son, but you blessed the mother through her. 
Father, as we begin this journey and we see that these decisions that we make today, these decisions of who we spend time with, who we believe in, how we choose to live, these are eternal, eternal choices, Lord. Help us to consider them carefully so that we can do what is right and what honors you above all things. Father, bless this time now as we sing. Help us to pour our hearts to you. Father, if there's one here who has never given their life to Christ, one here who's never made that choice, one here who's in danger of John 3, 18, Father, I pray that today is the day. Today is the day they will decide that they need a Savior, and his name is Jesus. Father, as we stand up and sing, take from our hearts, Father, the praise do your name. If there's anyone here, Father, that needs to make that decision, may they come and find me so that we can talk and pray, and one more soul can glorify your name today. All this, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.